0: Morning, Grace. Uh, passage today is John 9, 1 through 4. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming. When no one can work. Good morning. As you may know, three weeks ago, my family and I got to go on a vacation of sorts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> camping in the rain, sleeping in the van, that's why they're laughing. Uh, not very restful, but then the last two weeks, was able to spend time in the office um, working on some backlogged ministry projects and so the advantage of not preaching for 3 weeks is got to go on a bit of a vacation and spend some extra time with my family and then uh, get get some stuff done especially in liturgy which I look forward to sharing with you in the coming weeks the disadvantage perhaps is that the 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 preaching swell built for 3 weeks and so this is an ambitious sermon. It's been building for three weeks and it's about to be unleashed on you all. It's good, but it's a it's a lot. <laughs> Before I get to it though, I want to uh publicly thank Pastor Mike for preaching the last three weeks to free us up, to go on vacation on a practical level and to get some things done, but also and even more importantly. Uh, for handling Haggai so well. Two things in particular, which even will, one of the first one will show up in the sermon is the importance from his first sermon on consider your ways. That, that was, that's such an important concept and an idea. And then the other one from his third sermon was Jesus as consecrated flesh made an unclean woman clean when she touched the fold of his garment. That was awesome. I, I think both will stay with me for a long time. So thank you. With that, welcome back to John. In case you're just joining us, or in case you just forgot and your memory is like mine, or perhaps just lost track of where we are, we've made our way up to and through most of John 9. Overall, the Gospel of John is was written by John in order to convince his readers that Jesus is the Christ, the long-promised Messiah, had finally come, and Jesus of Nazareth, But the reason that he wanted to convince his readers of that, including you and I, is that they and we might believe in Jesus as the Christ, through which through which find eternal life. To zoom in a little bit more, you may remember that John 7, 8, and 9, those three chapters together describe Jesus' encounters, mainly with the religious leaders of his day, the Jewish religious leaders at the time of the Feast of Booths, one of the three main Jewish feasts. And all of that was just six months before the Feast of Passover, at which he would be crucified. To zoom in one more time, John 9 records Jesus miraculously giving physical and then spiritual sight to a man born blind and the various reactions that those things produced. It's an awesome chapter. We've already considered the healing, the healings, the responses of those who witnessed it and those who knew of the man who had been healed and Jesus' interpretation of all of that. This morning we're going to consider more carefully Jesus' explanation for the man's blindness. So the man was born blind and his disciples wanted to know why. Why was he born like that? And we're going to consider more carefully Jesus' answer To that. In particular, we're going to consider the significance of the question of why in any time of suffering. Do you know suffering, Grace? Have you known it? Do you know somebody who is? The natural response is to ask why, and we're going to look at that. We're going to consider as well the prevailing notion of the answer to that question in Jesus' day. We're going to consider Jesus' counter-cultural answer, and then ambitiously, you might want to plug your ears for this eight, eight broader truths about suffering. Uh, but they're quick. They're just like a sentence each because we got to bring those two streams together. What Jesus teaches about suffering here with what the Bible in a broader sense teaches about suffering to flip our entire understanding of it upside down the way I think Jesus means it to be. So the main takeaways then in all this are if you're not a Christian, If your hope is not yet in Jesus, that through this passage and this sermon, you would learn repentance from your suffering. Your suffering is meant to draw you to repentance, and I hope to help you to see why. And then if you are a Christian, your main takeaway is to find hope in the midst of every trial, in the certain knowledge that God is working in and through everyone, and here's the key, in a way that is greater than if you had not experienced that suffering. That's amazing. That that flips everything upside down, if we hear that with years of faith. So let's pray that God would be pleased to do these things. And it wouldn't take two hours. God, thank you for this people. Thank you that they love you and they love your word and they want to lean into this. I'm grateful to pastor a people that longs to know what your word says and to live in light of it. And I'm also grateful to be the pastor of a church where certainly there are people here this morning who are not yet Christians, but want to know more about what that means. And they know that they'll find a place here that's welcoming and loving for them to consider that. And I pray that the sermon would be a a help. Thank you that we're a church that's not ashamed of the easy things, like the love and mercy and grace of God, or the hard things, like the fact that suffering is a tool for him to bring about repentance and sanctification. I'm thankful to pastor a, a people who love what your word says more than their own at least most of the time we do we love your what your word says more than we love our own sensibilities we long for our sensibilities to be shaped entirely by your word and i pray that this morning would be a means to that end and i pray with with all of this that those who are who who are suffering now physically or emotionally or or spiritually or some other way i pray that those who are suffering now Would have the lens through which they see it or the story through which they interpret it shaped this morning in a way that suffering will still be suffering. It still hurts or it wouldn't be suffering. And yet we'd be able to do so with eyes of faith and a heart of hope. It will help us to endure as we await the day when there will be no more, when all will be made new, when every tear will be dried. The effect, every effect of sin will be done away with forever. We long for that day. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most consistent questions that we ask, test this. Consider the suffering that you're in now, perhaps, or remember suffering that you've experienced. Test what I'm about to say against your life or the life of those in the, the, the lives, the suffering of those in your life. One of the most consistent questions that we ask when faced with hardship is why? Why is this happening? Why is this going on? Why? Why? It's one of the most common questions that people ask me as a pastor when they come into my office in the midst of their suffering, and it's certainly a question I've regularly asked, especially in times of deepest sorrow. This is the best I got it, sort of the psychological component of this. The underlying assumption, I think, of the question seems to be, meaning th- this isn't just Christians, this is people in general, for all times and places ask this when life is hard. And I think the underlying assumption of that question seems to be this, that enduring a trial or a loss is more bearable if we know there's some kind of good behind it or that will come out of it. Trials are hard. That's what makes them trials. Trials. The idea that they might be in vain, that there's nothing useful or good that is in them or through them is harder still. And so we long, all of us, just because of our very nature, we long for an explanation that will help us endure the trials when they come. Well, this response, this impulse to ask why is not new to us. It has been the steady response of mankind since the very beginning of mankind, from the very first words in the Bible, the very first book of the Bible, all the way to the end. Long, barren Sarah wanted to know why the children she so longed for for so long. Once she became pregnant, she she wanted to know why they struggled so mightily in her womb. The daughters of, I don't even know how to say his name, the daughters of Zelophehad, fatherless, brotherless, and without any male relatives, wondered why their father's name should be blotted out when it came to distributing the promised land. Likewise, the descendants of Joseph wondered why their portion of land was small, even though their numbers were large. And Joshua Moses wanted to know why God would make his wrath burn hot against his chosen people and also why he was selected to lead such a grumbling bunch. Cried out loud, why God? Many of God's people wondered why God did not answer their prayers in times of trial. Saul and David, the author of Lamentations and Habakkuk and many others. Because of the tremendous suffering inflicted upon him by Satan, Job wondered why God would allow him to live past his birth and why God marked him for suffering. Jeremiah wondered why his pain was unceasing and his wounds incurable, even though he served the Lord faithfully. And in a remarkable prayer, in a remarkable season of suffering, Isaiah wondered, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? God's people often wondered, Psalms, the prophets, why the wicked prospered while the righteous suffered. The disciples wondered why they were unable to cast out a terrorizing demon. At the death of Jesus, they doubted and were troubled, wondering why this had happened and what it could mean, what had gone wrong. Undoubtedly, the man born blind in John chapter 9 wondered this as well. Picture that. I mean, we read his story. You looked at it carefully already with me. Why? Why, why did I need to suffer like this, God? Why am I forced to beg to survive? Why am I such a burden on my parents? Why am I the object of pity of so many? Why have you, God, allowed me to endure such hardship that has come from this blindness in addition to the blindness? But I find it really interesting that it wasn't through the blind man that the question of why comes to us. Did you notice that? It comes to us in this passage as well, but not through the man born blind, the one suffering. But instead, it came to Jesus through the disciples. Consider with me the first two verses of our text for this morning. As he, verse 1, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, they said different words, but the heart of their question was, why is it that he was born blind? Again, it, it came in a different form, and we'll get to that in a second. But it was one that, assu- and it came in a form of something, they, they assumed something that wasn't true. But their basic question was an attempt to grasp the reason behind the man's blindness. As they walked by him and saw him and evidently knew he'd been born blind. blind. Why is this? Why, why did this happen? As we just saw, the why question was altogether common throughout the Bible. This wasn't unique to the disciples. People had been asking it for centuries and millennia before that. But Grace, hear this. When asked with a humble heart of faith, it is a good and God-honoring question. If you think the sermon is trying to steer you away from asking why, it's not. It's a good, and at least can be a good and God-honoring question. Let us continue to ask that, for it is right. Learn from the saints of old that this is a good question, but there's a good way to ask it. And when it's asked that way, in our times of trial, it is this, this crying out to God of why is a desperate declaration that God is uniquely wise. We might not be consciously thinking this, but this is what it is. When we, in faith, cry out to God, why am I enduring this? It is a declaration that God is uniquely wise. That is, that he alone knows the reason. We are affirming that he knows. We're asking him to reveal to us not what he doesn't have, but what he has. It's a it's a declaration that he is uniquely good, that he cares about us in our suffering, and that's why we go to him, and that he is uniquely sovereign, that he alone is able to do something About this, whether through a doctor or, as we see in this passage, a miracle. And yet, while asking the question is common, what's far less common is a clear and direct answer, a voice from God in real time. Right? God's word gives us general principles, and it even gives us several. I can't help but to think of Job and Joseph, and ultimately Jesus. The Bible gives explicit reasons why certain people suffer in the Bible and broad principles to guide us as well, but it's pretty rare that we get the specific reason for the specific suffering that we are enduring. Again, I imagine you can easily relate to this. How many times have you asked God why during a struggle only to be met with what felt like silence and distance? How often how often have you longed for an explanation that would make sense and set your heart at ease, even just by a little, only to have David's prayer come to mind? How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Again, for God's good purposes. That was the case for most of the time, for most of the people of God in the Bible as well. But if ever there was an opportunity for the question to be answered, this has to be it though, right? This this passage, Jesus was right there with the disciples, right in front of the man born blind. And it occurred to me this week for the first time, incidentally, that the man wasn't deaf. He was blind but he's not deaf. You have to wonder if he heard Jesus or the disciples asking this question and he's like, "Yeah, that's that's a good one." And just <laughs> leaning in, will he answer this? Will will he help me to get this because my life stinks in a lot of ways? You have to wonder if he heard and was wondering that. We have to wonder if he heard the question, would the disciples get an answer? Would the man get an answer? Or would Jesus leave them wondering of the mysteries of God? Well, before I answer that question for you from the text, we got to take a look at the answer the disciples assumed. So why? Why is this man born blind? The disciples had an answer that they assumed. Again, asking why in times of hardship is a nearly universal phenomenon. And I think you'll notice this too. Read history, any, any part of history. You'll also notice that people tend to have an answer. And the, the answer, the spectrum of those answers is as wide as the spectrum of those asking the question. Hardship is so common, Grace. We all experience, and experience it on some level. It's so common that it's nearly impossible to function in this world and not go crazy without the ability to make some sense of it. How can there be suffering like this? We, we have to have some explanation in our own minds, even if we totally made it up, to be able to live in this world as it is? Well, the Jews in Jesus' day, including the disciples, were no exception. They, they had what they thought was an answer. It was, sort of. When it came to the kind of suffering experienced by the man in front of them, a lifetime of blindness and all that went with it, they wanted to know why, and they believed they had an answer. Look at verse 2. As he passed by, Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and the disciples asked him, Rabbi, Here's their answer. Here's what they assumed. Who sinned, this man or his parents? It's the only option that he was born blind. Why was he born blind? Or why is anyone born with any kind of disability? Or ultimately, why do people suffer in this world? The prevailing answer among the Jews at the time of John 9 was sin. The man was born blind, they assumed, because someone had sinned and God was judging them for that, punishing this man for that. The only question was, who? Whose, whose sin was this man's suffering on account of? There's some warrant to that idea, Grace. We need to understand that. Certainly some physical suffering is the result of God's judgment. Pharaoh, along with all of Egypt, was covered in boils for refusing to let the Israelites go. Miriam became leprous for being contentious against Moses. Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for lying to the disciples. Taking communion, Paul says, is still the cause of some people becoming physically sick because they take it wrongly. What's more, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, seems to teach something like this. Exactly, actually. Exactly like what the disciples were wondering. It says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation those who hate me. Jesus himself seems to have taught a version of this back in John chapter 5. Afterward, that is after he'd healed a different man, the paralyzed man, if you remember that, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. And here's the key. He said, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Sounds a lot like what the disciples were wondering. And the main point for us to see is that there is biblical warrant. For the disciples suggestion. Sometimes suffering is the result of God's punishment for sin. For unbelievers, it's punishment. For believers, it's discipline to draw us both to draw us into repentance. But sometimes suffering is the result of God's punishment for our sin. And yet, while the disciples suggestion was possible, Jesus immediately dismissed it. That's not it. Here's, here's what he said. Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents. Here's the New Day of Translation. Disciples, we know this man's blindness is the result of God's judgment on someone's sin, but whose sin was it? Tell us. Was it this guy? Was it his parents? Someone else? Maybe an uncle? Tell us. Jesus, you're wrong. It's not him. That's not what this is. The source of his blindness had nothing to do with some in utero sin of him. If it was the result of his sin, it had to be some kind of weird sin in the womb, And if it's the result of his parents' sin, it was some preconception sin, it's not that, it's neither of those things. Your focus is too narrow. Jesus was not, of course, in saying it it was not that this man sinned. He was not suggesting that they were sinless. That wasn't his point. Only that their sins wasn't the cause of the man's blindness. While sin sometimes is the cause of suffering, it's not always the case. This means, therefore, there must be other reasons for congenital blindness or other types of suffering, and there are. You see many in the Bible. For instance, at God's suggestion, Job suffered tremendously at the hand of Satan because of his righteousness. The disciples suffered for their faithfulness to Jesus, according to Jesus' promise. And most significantly of all, according to God's eternal plan, Jesus, who was entirely without sin, suffered more than anyone else ever has in order to save the world from sin. Indeed, there are a number of reasons why people suffer, even the people of God. If not for the reason of his sin or that of his parents, and given the fact that there are numerous other possible reasons why someone might be born blind or suffer, why then has this man been suffering for so many years? That brings us to the rest of Jesus' response. Would he answer the question? Would he would he tell them explicitly why? Verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. All right, so here's the question, Grace. I want you to see this. I want you to feel this. Was this an answer to their question or not? Their larger question of why is this man, why was he born blind? Did Jesus... In saying what he just said, answer that, or didn't he? What did Jesus mean here? There's a couple of grammatical and exegetical possibilities. That is, there are two ways to read Jesus' reply that would be consistent with John's choice of words. Let me give you those two. The first possibility that was that Jesus did, in fact, and was, in fact, directly answering the why question. That's the first possibility. According to this reading, His answer was that the man had been afflicted by God. So his blindness was from God, from birth, not because of anyone's sin, but in order that Jesus would be able to heal him in that moment. God had prepared this blind man so that in that moment, Jesus would heal him and God would be glorified through his healing. That's what it looks like on the surface, and even more so if you read the NIV. Any of you have the NIV? Take a look at it. This is what the NIV says. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's the first possibility. It's possible. Second, the second possibility was that Jesus was not directly answering the why question. That is, there is a way to read Jesus' words as dismissing the disciple's suggestion. It's not its not because he sinned or his parents did, but offering no alternative explanation. Instead, according to this second possible reading, Jesus bypassed the larger why question and simply explained that regardless of the reason, God was about to be glorified through the man's blindness. And so here's another way you could translate it, The, the ESV purposefully leaves it in the middle because the text doesn't tell us by itself one way or the other. The NIV leans one way, but here's a way to translate it that would be faithful to John's words or Jesus' words, and it's this, neither this man nor his parents, again, in other words, that's not the reason for his blindness, sinned, neither this man nor his parents, and here's the key, period, hard stop, but so that the works of God may be revealed in him, it is necessary for us to work the works of him who sent me. All right, both are possibilities. Both are, you might be answering it and you might not. How do we decide? Before going any further, before settling on which possibility is most likely, let me give you a couple things. Number one, again, both work. Both work grammatically. Both work exegetically. The, the text itself doesn't privilege or much less require one over the other. Number two, some have suggested that the first possibility seems out of God's character. That God would never cause someone to be born blind and to suffer in that kind of a way. There might be something worth considering about this, but grace settle on this. The same power of God that was about to heal this man from a lifetime of blindness could have prevented it from happening in the first place. Why do I say that? Here's why. An omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent being is not off the hook for the suffering of his creatures simply because he didn't directly cause it. A legitimate theodicy. Do you know that word, theodicy? It means an explanation of God's relationship to evil. A legitimate theodicy must do more than just that, and it does. Third, along those lines, the primary reason many recoil at the first possibility is because they are thinking in horizontal terms rather than vertical ones. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that 20 years of blindness is really hard compared to not 20 years of blindness. That's true. No question about it. But 20 years of blindness compared to the eternal conscious torment the man deserved, and we all deserve, for a rebellion against God looks a lot different, doesn't it? Likewise, get this as well, feel this grace. Being healed of blindness is a great blessing, if only in this life. But the idea of being blind for years in order to be the means by which, in the recorded word of God for all time, the Son would be glorified—who <sighs> wouldn't want that? If you have any concept of the vertical component of what's happening right here, right now—that's much like the disciples in Acts 5:41, who rejoiced that they were worthy, considered worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. That's awesome. So. If You turn this from a merely horizontal thing to the vertical thing that it is and always is. It looks a little different. Fourth, if God promises to make all things work together for good for those who love him. Those promises are true, and they are. Then we really are able to consider it all joy when we face trials of any kind, even at the hand of God. Faith, hear this remember this grace, especially if you know someone who is suffering. Faith in this kind of promise means believing. Settle on this now. If you have not yet known suffering, settle on this before you do. Faith in this kind of promise, and they're all over the Bible means believing that suffering a lifetime of blindness at the benevolent hand of God, according to the perfect purposes of God and for the glory of God, is always infinitely better than a lifetime of sight. Settle on that. Fifth, combined. These things help us to see that not only are both possible grammatically and exegetically, but they're also both possible theologically as well. That is, they are both consistent with the character, nature, and promises of God and are therefore both good possibilities. It's very unlike what many believe. This means that it is the larger context of Jesus' words then that will point us in the right direction rather than anything in the words themselves. And this immediate reply with that largely because what I'm about to explain, it is generally agreed that it is the second alternative that is the most likely possibility. Jesus probably was not directly answering this larger why question of the man's suffering. Instead, he was most likely correcting the disciples' false assumption that all such suffering was the result of God's judgment. And at the same time, and I love this, I hope you do too. You only get one page on this, but I hope you love it preparing them for the awesome display of physical and spiritual glory that he was about to unleash. That's what this was about. Physically, of course, the blind man was about to be miraculously made able to see. Jesus was about to open the eyes of his head. And as a result, for the first time in his life, he'd be able to see God's creation, appreciate physical beauty, provide for himself and not have to beg or be a drain on his parents and be free from the judgment and pity, at least in this area, of others. If that were all the blessing Jesus gave the man, that, that would be be sweet. But far, far more significantly still, the blind man was about to be miraculously made able to see. That is, Jesus was about to open the eyes of his heart. And as a result, certainly for the first time in his life, He'd be able to see the holiness of God, the true nature of his sin, his need for cleansing and forgiveness, his awareness that all the suffering he'd endured for his blindness paled in comparison to the suffering he deserved, and the unique sufficiency of the man standing directly in front of him to rescue him from his sin, to reconcile him to God, and to grant him everlasting life. Grace, don't miss this. Jesus is not probably answering the larger question of Why? While we might want him to be here, while we might want this to be a help in understanding that, what it is, is just as glorious. It helps us to see a number of equally profound spiritual truths. Get this. While the man's sin was not the cause of his physical blindness, this is not just a a story of some neat healing of the eyes. While the man's sin was not the cause of his physical blindness, Jesus said, it was the cause of his spiritual blindness. And so it is for you and for me and for all mankind. Here's another one. As this man was born physically blind, so are we all born spiritually blind. And we get a picture of that here. That's why Jesus could stand right in front of him and he could remain unmoved. And that's why, Grace Church, you and I can read the very words of God, live in the very world of God that he created and governs, and be continually in the very presence of God, for he is everywhere and not be stirred. Here's another one. The fact that this man's physical blindness led to all kinds of difficulty and suffering is a vivid picture of the effects of our spiritual blindness. Grace, apart from spiritual sight, you cannot live in this world as you were made to. You can't, I can't, we can't. We'll spend this life, even if unknowingly, stumbling and suffering on the spiritual level. And this man gives us an example of that. Here's another one. That this man was a beggar on account of his physical blindness helps us to see the spiritual poverty common to all of us in our sin-wrought spiritual blindness. Here's another one. Just as the man was powerless to bring about sight, either physically or spiritually, for himself try as much as he wanted, wash with spitty mud as much as he wanted. He could not give himself eyes to see in his head or in his heart. Just as he was powerless to bring about physical sight for himself, so too are we powerless to bring about spiritual sight for ourselves. We cannot save ourselves, Grace. This man gives us a picture of this. And ultimately... Jesus' healing of the man's lifetime of physical blindness was primarily meant to sharpen our understanding of his far more glorious healing of the man's far more serious spiritual blindness. The man's physical healing, as awesome as it was, paled in comparison to the greater gift that Jesus gave him, spiritual healing and right worship. One more. And the reason why this second possibility is the most likely, the main reason, and very practically. The main reason it is believed that Jesus was not directly answering the why question, but indirectly speaking around it, is something you may have noticed, something strange in verses 3 and 4. Look at 3 and 4. There's something a little odd in this. If this whole thing is really just about Jesus and his healing, there's something a little bit off in those two verses. You see it? Take a look. You see it? Jesus didn't say that the man's blindness was that the work, singular, of God might be displayed. And even more strange still, if this is only about Jesus healing this man's blindness, more strange still is that he didn't say, therefore I, Jesus alone, need to, need to work the work of him who sent me. Do you notice that? There's some plural stuff going on here. It leads us to believe the second possibility is the right one. He said instead that the man's blindness was that the works, more than just this healing of God, might be displayed and that we, that is Jesus and his followers, must work the works, again plural, of him who sent Jesus into the world. In other words, this encounter is about more than Jesus healing the man in that exact moment at that one time for the glory of God. It is about all of Jesus' followers, you and I included. Participating in the continual work of proclaiming the gospel to the worlds and sacrificially living it out in the worlds that the world might be given spiritual sight even as we care for them in their physical blindness for the glory of God. You with me, Grace? That's awesome. That really is awesome. And it really is a charge that all of us need to hear we get to participate in the continuation of John 9 when we work the works of him who sent Jesus to give sight to the blind and to care for those who suffer in it. This whole encounter is ultimately about providing a picture of the effects of sin and our need to be rescued from them. But Jesus' unique ability to accomplish that rescue and grace, helping Jesus' followers, you and I, to see the privilege we all share of participating in Jesus' rescuing work. Practically then, Grace Church, do not neglect the works of God, that the glory of God might be displayed. As Pastor Mike said, consider your ways. When you speak today, whatever it is at the ministry fair, at your booth, if you're running it, or the booth that you're visiting, as you talk to your spouse or your kids or your neighbors, consider, determine, to speak in ways that are in the light and they give light and they give healing. When you spend your money this week, whether clicking it on Amazon or handing it over for a tasty pork chop at the farmer's market, determined to do so in a way that is in the light and gives light, the light of Christ. When you plan out your week, determine to spend each moment in the light in a way that is most likely to help the blind see Jesus. When you go to work or stay home with the kids, determined to do so in the light. Determined to work the works of God wherever you go. When you engage your neighbors this afternoon, you're mowing the lawn. Hey, Bob. Hey, Sally. Determined to look strange in their eyes. For some of you, that might be easier than others, but but not because you're just strange. But because you're living in the light and you're determined to bring the gospel to bear for them. And when you interact with those who are suffering, determined to care for them in the light, that is, as God cares for you, even as you remember that their physical suffering is a picture of the spiritual suffering common to all of us apart from Jesus. And grace, as you suffer, suffer in the light, not as one who has no hope or do, does not know that Jesus is working through it to make you like him. Okay, that's that. Eight truths, and I'm going to, end with just a few sentences to bring these two streams together. All of that was one stream. Here's the second, eight truths about suffering from the Bible. All suffering, grace, is the result of sin. Eight truths. Number one, all suffering is the result of sin. Some is the direct result, as we saw, of our own sins or the sins of others in our lives. And some is the indirect result of the brokenness of this world due to sin. Where there is no sin... There is no suffering. Not all suffering is the result of particular sins of particular people, but all suffering is the result of sin's destructive power. That's number one. Number two. For unbelievers, hear this and pray for your neighbors. Pray for your children. Pray for yourself. For unbelievers, there is no promise of any goodness for them to come out of their suffering. There's none. God has not promised anything good in or out of the suffering of those who continue in the rejection of God. Number three. For unbelievers, it gets worse. Even the worst suffering they might endure, and many have endured much. It is but a foretaste of the eternal wrath of God that awaits them in hell. That is what it means that the wages of sin is death. That's harsh and heavy, but it's true. Number four. Number two and number three, that is no guarantee of goodness. And the worst of suffering on earth is but a foretaste of what awaits in hell apart from repentance. Two and three, because that is the seriousness of sin and rebellion against a holy God. Number five, for believers, however, for those whose hope is in Christ, as I mentioned earlier, not one ounce of your suffering will ever be wasted. If your hope is in Jesus, not a single moment of discomfort will be in vain. We ought to rejoice at every bitter experience in the certain knowledge that God is using it to glorify his name and work a greater good in us through it than we could ever have experienced apart from it. Number six, for believers, there is also the certain promise that God will end all suffering and restore all the effects that sin and suffering have had on us in the new heavens and the new earth. Number seven, five and six, so no suffering is ever wasted and all suffering will end and be reversed in the new heavens and earth. Five and six, because God is good, wise, and sovereign over every genetic anomaly, renegade cell, natural disaster, and sinful choice. Even those things, Grace, settle on this. Even those things, every renegade cell, genetic anomaly, natural disaster, and sinful choice, even those things are tools of God to bring about the redemption of the world. Lastly, number eight, there is some mystery to how all of these things fit together, but there is clarity in the fact that the Bible teaches each one of them. That means that however we make sense of our suffering, now or in the future, ours or someone we love, No matter how we make sense of our suffering, it must take these things into account if it is to be true and navigated in faith. Okay, those are the two streams. How do they come together? And the short and simple answer to this is since Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, suffering has been in this world. But Jesus came to overcome the destructive forces of darkness and sin, and so he has. Through faith, we are united with Jesus and his victory and the assurance that one day all of our suffering and all of its effects will be no more. And so, Grace, the charge to you is this. Look to Jesus, therefore. Do not fear the suffering of this world, but use it, all of it, every drop of it, to point people to Jesus and therein work the works of God while it is still light.